Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning, the final from Guaranteed Rate Field in Chicago. We got another doubleheader to talk about. Game one, it's the Guardians seven, the White Sox four. Game two, it's the Guardians four, the White Sox five. I'm Davey Barris, lifelong Cleveland baseball fan, and I want to talk about the actual game on the field, the thing I enjoy watching baseball being played. And we split the doubleheader with the White Sox. We still have a chance to win or at least split the series. So, you know, you got to take away some positives, even though we end the day with a loss. That win in the day game was still a lot of fun. And frankly, it's fascinating because these games are like mirror images of each other. And that just was so weird how it went down yesterday. So let's get into it. We'll get into the storylines of the game. First, before we do that, I want to give a shout out. We got another five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I love it. We are an all-five-star reviewed show on Apple Podcasts, which is so awesome. It really helps other people find the show. This one's from Dogfather, multiple exclamation points. I love that when you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it uses your like Apple ID name, so you don't get to like put your actual name in. It just takes this random nickname that you've been using for your Apple ID. So the Dogfather says, I'm from Cleveland, but live in Austin. I enjoy listening to a true fan's perspective each day. I have nobody around here to talk to about the Guardians, so Davey is the next best thing. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much from Austin. I I really appreciate that. And I understand because even in Cleveland, even in Cleveland, sometimes I find it hard to find people to talk baseball with, to talk about the Guardians with. I mean, I'm lucky that I have a brother that, you know, is as crazy about baseball as I am. Uh, So we have some good conversations. But yeah, went out with friends, you know, out. Well, I got a baby, so I'm not going out for drinks very often anymore. But uh, yeah, went out with friends, even the, you know, at work, people at work, just they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're doing all right this year. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. They don't follow it like we follow it. So it is hard to find good conversations. And back in 2020, that's kind of why I started this podcast. The landscape was a little bit different out there for podcasts. I feel like the conversations are getting better, at least in the podcast space. They still have no idea how to talk about baseball on local sports talk radio. I mean, they really don't. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm glad, uh, yeah, I'm glad we can get together morning people and talk baseball and talk about the game, not not panic over rookies or panic over transactions. And uh, believe me, I'm a transaction junkie, and I'm very excited to see what the trade deadline is going to spit out. But I'm not worried about it because there's a baseball game being played. There were two games yesterday, so we got plenty to talk about without stressing about who's going to get Juan Soto. So let's get into the actual game on the field, and thank you again for that review. If you want to take the time, take probably took Dogfather 30 seconds to do that. So if you want to take the time, if you're an Apple Podcast listener, go ahead, leave a five-star review, let people know about the show boost that algorithm, and help grow the show, that would be awesome. All right, so the storylines of this game, mere images of each other. I mean, down to the inning. Down to the inning, these games. So the Guardians, in that first game, have a nice, comfortable lead. We're up 4-1. to one. Suddenly, the White Sox come back with an insane rally in the bottom of the seventh inning. They score three runs. They had five consecutive hits. 
including was it back to back to back back to back doubles followed by back to back to back singles uh so they tie the game up at four and then the guardians in the top of the ninth inning absolutely unload on liam hendricks for three runs not just the go-ahead run not just the insurance run but another bonus run on top of that another mario coin uh as some would say uh it's the sound effect they use at progressive field when the guardians score it's the same sound when mario got a coin that bing so uh and for those of you who don't live here and don't get to go to Guardians games. Uh, that's when you hear people talk about that. That's what they're talking about. Um, just the sound effect that they use at Progressive Field. So we get three in that ninth inning, and it's an insurmountable lead uh, for the Guardians. The White Sox can't come back against Emmanuel Classe. No chance in hell. Uh, so Classe shuts the door in the bottom of the ninth, and the Guardians win game one. So there you go. The White Sox have this amazing rally to come back in the seventh inning and then blow the game two innings later. Game two, what happens? Well, the White Sox have a very comfortable 3 nothing lead. The Guardians go one step above in the top of the seventh inning. Four runs up on the board. They take a 4-3 lead. They do it one better than the White Sox did it. They take the lead, and then in the bottom of the eighth inning in their last at-bat, the White Sox put up two runs. They tie it. They get the go-ahead run uh, on a bases-loaded single, and it's insurmountable for the Guardians. They can't get anything going off of Matt Foster. They do get a walk. I take it back. They do get a walk. I mean, they have the tying run on third base. They have the go-ahead run at the plate, so they make it closer than the White Sox made it in that first game, but they just can't get it. They can't get the big hit in the ninth inning to actually tie the game. And so, yeah, they fall in that second game. They split the doubleheader. But, I mean, the odds that these things would be mere images of each other, that the team would come storming back in the seventh inning, that the other team in their final at-bat would put the go-ahead run on the board that they needed. I mean, that's pretty crazy that it was was able to go down like that. I, I What are the odds that, you know, both teams would have these kind of rallies? So, I, it was just a fascinating day uh, to be a baseball fan. It was a roller coaster. I mean, it was really a, you know, amazing the momentum swings in this game. Because at 4-1, you felt like you had all the momentum in the world. Eli Morgan goes out there, helps McKenzie shut down the sixth inning, right? McKenzie goes five and two-thirds. Morgan finishes off that sixth inning. He's coming back out for that seventh inning. By the way, that entire rally happens with two outs, Zavala does single to lead off the inning, but the next two guys, Garcia and Jimenez, a force out and a fly out. So that whole thing, those five hits all come with two outs. Meanwhile, the Guardians rally, their rally in the seventh inning, uh, also comes, well, they get the first run, but then everything else comes with two outs. Jimenez would single to lead things off. Jones would strike out. Uh, Jimenez does make it up to second base. Um, and then he didn't have a stolen base on the day. So I'm guessing maybe a wild pitch by Ruiz. Yeah. Uh, so he makes it up to second base and then Ernie Clement singles and drives him in. Okay. Then a pop out from Fermil Reyes, pinch hitting Fermil Reyes, which was a rough at bat. He pops out 
And now you got two outs. So yeah, the Guardians do three hits in a row. Two triples in a single with two outs. Both rallies really happen with two outs. So, I mean, it was crazy the momentum swings. Because once that happened, you felt like all the momentum in the world was in the Guardians' favor. And if Francona hadn't have made some decisions, I know that Guardians Twitter was furious about the bullpen usage in Game 2. I mean, absolutely livid. Zach Meisel even asked Francona after the game about the bullpen usage in Game 2. And we're going to talk about it. But uh, the momentum swings in this game, the two-out rallies. Wow. Just a crazy day of baseball. So, all right, let's get into Game 1 first. Let's go in order. Uh, The storylines in Game 1. Yeah, McKenzie was really solid. Really solid on the day. It's a huge start for McKenzie, who has been lights out in the month of July. He's now 3-0 in the month of July with a 0.34 ERA. This isn't just, yes, it is three games against the American League Central, but it also has that start against the Yankees in there. So these these numbers are no joke. 3-0 with a 0.34 ERA. He's got 27 strikeouts to 8 walks. That's close to a a 3.5 strikeout to walk ratio. And he's got a whip of 0.79. He's given up one earned run for the entire month of July. And that happened in the game yesterday against the White Sox. One earned run for the entire month. I mean, this is some really, really great stuff we're seeing from Tristan McKenzie. Now, it's not huge strikeout numbers on the day, but limiting hard hit balls, definitely. He goes five and two-thirds, four hits, one earned run, two walks, all right, four strikeouts, all right, 94 pitches. He's only hard hit three times. That is a really rock-solid star from Tristan McKenzie. Uh, Going over to the illustrator here, he was working north to south. He was hitting all four quadrants. But uh, he was really, that fastball was up or down. It was in and out, but it was staying on the plate. And then even that slider, he was being very aggressive with that slider. Uh, He wasn't sweeping it across the zone like we see a lot of righties do. Like we see a lot of sliders, you know. There were a few down in that, you know, that glove side down quadrant. But for the most part, he was actually attacking the strike zone with that slider and then dropping that curveball north and south dropping it down. There was a bunch in the dirt. Wasn't really hitting the the below the knees area as much. Dropped a bunch in the dirt. You'll see the CSW numbers aren't eye-popping on either of those breaking pitches. Um, So he did have a decent CSW on his four-seam fastball. He had six whiffs on it, which was all right, but 10 called strikes for a 36% CSW on that four-seam fastball. The slider and the curve, not really. Only three whiffs combined between those two pitches. Usually, he gets a lot more with that curveball. Uh, so it's not it's only a 28% CSW total on the day, which is why the strikeout numbers aren't very high. But weak contact off of the slider and that curveball. I mean, they put seven sliders in play. Seven fastballs, seven sliders in play. But the average exit velocity off that slider was only 75.3 miles per hour. So inducing some really weak contact with that slider. And they were being aggressive and trying to put them all in play off that slider. Uh, so, yeah, so McKenzie, I mean, his fastball has been so good this year. Uh, last year, it was a problem for him. Last year, the uh, run value on that forcing fastball was at a plus six. This year, according to StatCast, it's at a minus eight, a huge swing. 
went from one of the weaker fastballs in baseball last year in 2021 to one of the stronger. I mean, that number is highlighted in red, which on StatCast lets you know that it's inching towards the top percentile in baseball. So that's really good that that fastball has been so effective for him on the year. And clearly, it was the pitch that was working for him on the day. I mean, really just pounding the strike zone, getting those strikes with the four-seam fastball. Of the four strikeouts, uh, let's see what pitches those come on. Uh, Two were on four-seam fastballs. One was foul-tipped into the glove by Larry Garcia. That was kind of on the middle of the plate, uh, just to the arm side. Another one on the outside edge against Zavala. Uh, on the glove side edge of the plate, uh, was a call strike, freezes him on the 2-2 count, and then two curveballs in the dirt. He gets uh, Engel, and he gets Grandal chasing curveballs way down in the dirt. So that's how McKenzie got his four strikeouts on the day. The fastball and the curveball, I'm not shocked. Those are those are probably his two best pitches. Uh, the slider uh, you know, works a little more than the curveball. He uses it a little more than the curveball, but the curveball is a really, really effective pitch. Actually, I take that back. He uses the curveball uh, way more than the slider right now on the season. Uh, let's see. He's thrown the curveball 314 times. He's thrown the slider 302. Uh, so it's getting close. It's getting close, but the curveball is still being used more. Uh, it's nastier, I'll tell you that. It's got a batting average of 105 against that curveball. Uh, they are hitting the slider a little bit, 267, but not yesterday. Not yesterday. I'm sure that batting average against number uh, definitely improved yesterday against that slider. So, McKenzie, absolutely fantastic. Keeps him in the game. The bullpen, however, falters. I'm stuck on pitching, I guess. Eli Morgan, now we'll talk about mirror images of these games. Eli Morgan was stuck in the middle of the plate. Now, not the way McKenzie was. McKenzie was being aggressive on the plate, working north and south across the plate, but he was hitting all four quadrants. McKenzie was stuck in the dead middle of the plate. I mean, fastballs clustered right at the belly, right down the middle of the plate, even changeups down the middle of the plate. That's not good. And Eli Morgan gets hammered in that uh, second inning, uh, his second inning of work. Well, comes in, he gets a third of an inning to get the out in the sixth inning, but then comes in for that seventh inning, and not surprisingly, forcing fastballs down the pipe. Those are the doubles he gives up to Yoan Moncada and to Josh Harrison. So he's stuck in the middle of the plate. And then when Hendricks gives up his big rally, he also is stuck in the middle of the plate. He's a little more down by the belt and down by the thighs, but the Guardians can hammer low pitches like that. So his fastball and his slider was not sweeping across. They were right down the middle, not using the edges, not pitching the corners, right down the pipe. And the Guardians were hammering him. Uh, the singles that he gives up was to Quan and to Ahmed Rosario are right down the pipe. Now, Josh Naylor goes up and gets a crazy high fastball. And uh, Nolan Jones's uh, double was a slider down at the knees. But uh, for the most part, he's working in the middle of the plate here. Uh, so even the sacrifice fly for or the sack bump for Miles Straw and the sacrifice fly from Jose Ramirez were on pitches that were right down the middle. Ramirez was a little low down towards the knees, but still middle of the plate. So Morgan and Hendricks for Chicago, the two pitchers that kind of get blown up in this game, are stuck in the middle of the plate. I think that's interesting. Uh, all right, the other storyline in this game, 
I mean, Steven Kwan leading the offense. He goes three for five in that first game. He had six base hits across the first two games of this series. I made the joke on Twitter that he was just living on the base paths at Guaranteed Rate Field. I mean, unbelievable job leading off this game, and he's involved in both rallies. In that fifth-inning rally, when the Guardians you know, put up that huge run, they put up those four runs to really take a commanding lead, um, it was kind of a pitcher's duel up into that fifth inning. Uh, but when they go off for four runs in that fifth inning, he's right in the heart of it. He has a big RBI double in that fifth inning, kind of kicks things off uh, in that fifth inning. And then it comes around to score. Uh, so, yeah, so we get some big runs there from Stephen Kwan, big centerpiece of that rally. And then he does it again in that ninth inning. He he gets the job done with a single after Miles Straw had sacked Bunn and Call over, who was pinch running, over to second base. Kwan delivers the big hit. That's the big insurance run. Uh, and then he's able to come around and score on Jose Ramirez's sack fly. So Kwan being on base three times, absolutely at the heart of both rallies, two RBIs, two runs scored on the day. I mean, it was amazing that they were able to turn the lineup over, and they were doing this all day. But the fact that Jones in the seventh hole gets that hit and then eventually comes around to score to kick off scoring in that ninth inning. Uh, in that fifth inning, it's the bottom of the order setting things up. It's uh, Nolan Jones with a walk, and then Austin Hedges hit by the pitch. Uh, that sets up the rally. That sets up Quan for his double to drive them in. By the way, a bloop double at 70.7 mile per hour exit velocity. So you'll love to see that from Stephen Quan. Man, he's just going to torture pitching. He's just absolutely going to torture pitching all season. And then that ninth inning rally, I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, they try to pitch Nolan Jones inside with breaking stuff. They try to get him to chase. He actually starts him off with a fastball right down the pipe for a called strike. His Hendricks second pitch, though, is a slider down at the knees. And Jones, if he can do this, prove that he's powerful enough to go down, drop the barrel head on the ball, and drive a double into the corner, they're going to have a real hard time pitching him with breaking stuff down and in like that. They're going to have to come up with another plan of attack against Nolan Jones. And then Josh Naylor pinch hits, and he is not messing around at all. Second pitch, it's a fastball up at his shoulders. And he goes up and just pops this thing in the center field, gets up there, and drives in that run. Uh, Naylor is not messing around. He got one at bat in that first game, and he made Hendricks pay again. A little weaker contact than that big grand slam, but made Hendricks pay again against Josh Naylor. The fact that he goes up and gets this ball is just crazy. Then uh, Straw on the first pitch is able to get down the sacrifice bunt. That's nice, not messing around. Moves the pinch runner up to second. And then Quan, he goes middle of the plate, gets a called strike. Quan does take that first pitch very, very often. Misses with a fastball up and then comes right back in the middle of the plate and Quan's ready for it. He shoots it out in the left field and brings call around to score. It's just, man, Hendricks, I told you, was stuck in the middle of the plate. Ahmed Rosario, he gets a called strike with a slider down, then throws him a fastball right at the thighs on the middle of the plate, and he shoots it into right field at 103.3 miles per hour. Uh, Jose Ramirez would come up, first pitch swinging, gets a slider, puts it out into right field to bring in Quan to score. Uh, so that's beautiful stuff to rally to win the game, and Classe absolutely shuts the door. So that's game one. Those were the big details. That's what went on in the rallies 
for the Guardians. And as you can see, Quan at the center of both of them. Uh, and turning the lineup over, bottom to top of the lineup. Those are beautiful rallies when those things happen. Then game two, yes, game two is a bit of a disaster. The White Sox peck away at Connor Pilkington. Uh, man, Pilkington just, it's not exciting stuff. Uh, you know, three walks on the day to go with three strikeouts. He does last five innings, gives up four hits, only two runs, three walks, three strikeouts, 89 pitches. He's hard hit one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. There's just nothing exciting about Pilkington's start here. Uh, he was getting okay whiffs on his four-seam fastball, a 39% whiff rate. He threw it a ton. I mean, 50. he was mostly fastball changeup on the day. Uh, the fastball was decently, decently effective, uh, but those walks would turn out to hurt him. Uh, gives up a run in the third, gives up a run in the fifth, and I believe, if I remember the radio call right, uh, that those walks really cost him uh, in that third inning. Yeah, he walks two batters in that third inning. Does he walk in a run? Yeah, he walks in a run. Man, back-to-back walks. I didn't get to this game until later in it. And he walks in a run in the third inning. He can't have that. And then in the fifth inning with two outs, it's a two-out walk to Tim Anderson. And then Johan Moncada doubles right after it. So those walks really do cost him in this game. Then he would go to Castro out of the bullpen. Now, we're down. We're losing. Okay, it's 3 nothing. And the problem everybody has on Guardians Twitter is they feel like Francona. They feel, I don't know, the front office, the whole coaching staff, the whole organization just gives away these second games of the doubleheader. They don't put the effort in in the second games of these doubleheaders, right? They start Pilkington again. Everybody is begging to see Battenfield. He has clearly been the best pitcher down in Columbus this season, and they're begging to see what Bannonfield could do because Pilkington is just, it's been uninspiring so far. And I get it. It's a hard jump from AAA to the majors. It's a big leap. So we would expect a guy to struggle in his rookie season, but let somebody else have a crack at it. Tuesday, we somebody else has to take a crack at it. Savali's spot in the rotation. Somebody else has to take a crack at it, right? This has to be Bannonfield. Who gets that spot? We'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, And then he goes to the bullpen, and he said his plan was that Anthony Castro would give him two innings. That was his plan. Well, Castro gives up a solo home run to Aloy Jimenez, so it's not looking too hot for him. He does get a double play to get out of the sixth inning. So now we're down 3 nothing. It's getting even worse. Uh, but then the Guardians come back and rally in that top inning. They rally in that seventh inning. They crack off so many hits in that seventh inning. It's unbelievable. Um, the triples from Straw and Rosario, we'll get to that in a second. So now you have the lead. You have the 4-3 to three lead. And who does he go to protect that lead? He goes to Brian Shaw. He still has De, Lo, De Los Santos there. He still has Henches available. He even talked about Classe possibly being available, and he threw 10 pitches. Um, but instead, he goes to Brian Shaw. All right, Brian Shaw survives. He survives the seventh inning, a ground out, and two lineouts. Every ball is a hard-hit ball. All three outs in that seventh inning are a hard-hit ball. So one of them had an expected batting average of 720, the Reese McGuire lineout. 
So yeah, he walks the tightrope and gets out of the inning somehow. So do you, you know, cash out your chips there with Brian Shaw? Say, hey, okay, we won a few hands of blackjack with Brian Shaw. Let's walk away now. No, he sticks Brian Shaw out there for another inning in the eighth inning, and he gets absolutely blown up, right? They rally back against him. And then by that point, they bring in uh, Sandlin, and he can't get the job done. He gives up the hit. The runs get credited to Brian Shaw, but Sandlin gets the blown save. Uh, he ends up throwing one to A.J. Pollock. Uh, that Pollock hammer doesn't. We're going to talk about this. He does not hammer it. Uh, but he hits it to third base. It's a crazy hop for Clement, who's usually a really good defender at third base, I will say. But he can't get the job done here, and that's tough. When you're replacing Jose Ramirez, it's tough when you're the guy that stands out, right? When you're replacing Jose Ramirez, you do not want to be standing out like that. And uh, unfortunately, he gets a bad one hop that pops over his glove in the left field, and two runs come in to score in that eighth inning. So the runs are credited to Shaw, even though Sandlin gives up the hit. Um, yeah, it felt like he was giving up on the game. I mean, why? I get that you were hoping Castro would last longer because you were losing at that point. Um, so you're thinking, all right, I'm losing in this game. I don't want to, you know, I still have to win tomorrow. Maybe I'll save a bullpen armor too. But once you take the lead, go get that win. You had all the momentum in the world, and instead you run Brian Shaw back out there. That's kind of unforgivable, and Guardians Twitter is letting Terry Francona know it. I mean, it's interesting on a day when the fans were chanting uh, to fire La Russa in Chicago, Guardians Twitter is all up in a huff about Terry Francona. I mean, fan bases are really not happy with some of the decision-making. And I saw the takes on Twitter. Everybody was like, look, what Francona has done with the rookies this year and what he's done in the clubhouse has been fantastic. And I think that's the reason. Hamilton didn't understand this. Hamilton was trying to defend Tony La Russa last night on the game. I was listening to the radio broadcast. He was trying to defend Tony La Russa for his in-game decision-making. He's saying, look, he's not the one throwing these pitches. Why are you booing Tony La Russa? Because it's the whole organization in Chicago. It's the attitude in that clubhouse. That clubhouse, has it just has, seems like it has... No cohesion, no momentum. It's just not clicking under him. They want a new voice in Chicago, one that's going to inspire this team that's very talented to maybe reach its full potential because La Russa is not. That's why Hamilton, that's why they're booing him. That's why they want him fired. Not an in-game decision. Not, you know, not necessarily what was happening in the moment. It was what's been going on in Chicago. They think they have the most talented team in the American League Central, and they have not performed like that at all. Now, for Cleveland, it is decision-making. We are pissed off about individual decisions, and to leave Brian Shaw in there. I mean, Shaw last year was very good. What Almost, almost a return to form of his you know early years in Cleveland. His ERA was down in the threes, 3.49. Uh, even his expected ERA was decent at 4.54. But this year, he's back up to those Colorado numbers. He's got a 5.29 ERA. It's even higher than the expected ERA. It's actually been worse. Um, yeah, his walk rate has been, well, his walk rate always was uh, in double digits. So uh, not there. His hard hit rate is the hardest of his career at 44.7% hard hit rate. So it's getting worse for Brian Shaw. 
Last year, his cutter, one of the best pitches in baseball, a minus 11 run value. It actually was working last year. This year, it's at a plus three run value, and he just throws it all the time. All the time. He threw 28 cutters on the day. He threw one slider, one curve, one changeup, and one four-seam fastball. Uh, guess what? He got that slider in the curve for a called strike. Why did he not go back to those pitches at all? No, he threw 28 cutters, and they were hammering it. A 94.7 average exit velocity off of that cutter. So, yeah, it's not working with Brian Shaw. It's not. But he put him out there in a situation he should never have been in, and the White Sox are able to hammer him and take the lead in that eighth inning. Uh, now, here's the thing. Uh, the hit from the, the go-ahead hit from A.J. Pollock, the signal that one hops him, I thought it was interesting here because you have that hit, and then in the ninth inning, in the bottom of the ninth inning, Stephen Kwan puts a really good swing on the ball at uh, uh, with a runner on third base, right? Clement walks. He makes it all the way to third base on a sack bunt, moves him to second, Miles Straw grounds out to the right side, moves him to third, so he's there. The duck is on the pond to come home and tie the game. Quan has a really good at-bat and ends up hitting a nice line drive. It was 84.2 mile per hour exit velocity. Okay, so it wasn't smoked. It was a 12-degree launch angle. It was up there. Harrison is able to leap and come up with the catch. It had a 640 expected batting average. So Quan did everything you could ask from him. A nice line drive. Usually, that's going to get over the second baseman's head. Harrison was just in the right spot, had just enough reach in his arm, in that glove, to come up with the catch. Meanwhile, Pollock gets a big hit. He gets a one-hopper, or a chopper, that gets over the third baseman. It was only hit at 77.3 miles per hour. It only had a 340 expected batting average. So, the Bat-Bip gods were shining a little bit on Chicago in that second game. I mean, that very easily could have been a ground out. I mean, Clement, oh man, if it wasn't such a tough hop, maybe comes up with that thing. That's why it only has a 340 expected batting average. On that launch angle, on that exit velocity, they don't really expect that to get through very often. Not as much as Quan's lineout. Ugh, to go down on a lineout like that, that's got a 640 expected batting average. Uh, that's the Bat Bay of God's. Not in Cleveland's favor. Remember, BAPIP is batting average balls in play. That's why we refer to it a lot because it's kind of the luck stat, right? The lucky stat. It takes away, um, you know, if you get robbed of a hit and stuff like that, it kind of factors that in. So the balls you put in play, you did your job, you put the ball in play. Now, what happened if a guy makes, you know, if people are just making diving catches, all over the place on you, leaping catches all over the place on you, your bat bip's going to reflect that and be kind of low. If you're just getting seeing eye singles all day long, finding the gaps, uh, having balls drop right in front of outfielders, your bat bip's going to be pretty high. So that's why they kind of consider it the luck stat. How lucky were you a little bit on the day? And uh, clearly a nice, you know, a night they get the single for the White Sox. The Guardians don't get the line out. Uh, in that ninth inning. So that's why the Bat-Bip gods were shining a little bit. Uh, you know, I use it jokingly. We're shining a little bit on the White Sox in that eighth inning. Because they get the hit. They get the RBI hit that the Guardians needed. Now, that's not to take away from this Guardians rally in the seventh inning. Because triples, 
Uh, after singles from uh, Jimenez and Clement, the triples from Miles Straw, the single from Stephen Kwan, and then a triple from Ahmed Rosario. I mean, they had Hamilton almost blowing the roof off the place in that seventh inning. That's the Hamilton I enjoy. When he is locked into the game, when he's locked into a rally, that's the Hamilton that's enjoyable to listen to on the radio. That's the guy I miss. It seems like he goes off on tangents more and more these days. Um, so, yeah, the seventh inning was a really fun rally. Once again, turning the lineup over. I mean, the fact that uh, from the middle of the lineup, really, Jimenez down to Clement, then Straw in the ninth spot in the lineup with two outs delivers that big triple, frankly, just pokes it into right field. It's only an 86.5 mile per hour exit velocity, but it's right down into the corner. Uh, they struggle to come up with the ball, and Clement never stops running. So it's a big triple there. Steven Kwan delivers that nice single to drive him in. And then Ahmed Rosario hits one right up the alley. That's beautiful stuff. That triple from him. And Kwan, again, just off to the races, being aggressive on the base paths. So, I mean, it was a really fun rally in the seventh inning. I wish it was the winning rally. I wish this game was a little bit different. But unfortunately, our bullpen blows it. And their bullpen does turn in a nice performance. I mean, Joe Kelly was rock solid in the eighth, and Matt Foster handles his business after the walk. I mean, a walk almost cost Foster in that ninth inning, but he is able to get the save. Uh, So give them a little credit where credit's due. It's his first save on the season for Foster. So we end up splitting. I think that's about as much detail as I can give you in this game, right? Uh, I think you get the storylines of these games pretty clearly from what I've just ranted for the last half hour. So let's wrap this thing up. These doubleheader episodes always get a little bit long. You know what? You've taken two or three so far from the White Sox. That's a good series, right? You're winning the series. You got It's Bieber against Cease, so it's going to be a hell of a matchup in this finale. Uh, it's going to be an absolute battle between two of the best starting pitchers. It's two righties again, so I expect him not to mess with the lineup too much. I expect Quan and Jones to be your corner outfielders, right? I expect Andres Jimenez to be at second base. Don't mess with this lineup too much, Francona. The offense is cooking. The offense is cooking. You are hitting the ball off these White Sox. So let's stick with it for a Sunday. Let's go out there. Let's put our best lineup out there, and let's go win this series. These, this is a big series to win in the American League Central, it would be a big momentum thing to take three out of four from the White Sox. All right, before we get out of here, we do have to do MVP on the day. And, you know, I was going back in my head about this one. We gave it to Quan yesterday. Uh, He really was an important factor in both of these games. But I think I'm going to go with Tristan McKenzie as MVP on the day. It was a really strong start in that first game. Uh, You know, it's not considered a quality start because he doesn't last the full six innings, but it's a really, really good start. And like we said, he has just been absolutely fantastic for the month of July. I mean, maybe I should be giving him MVP on the month for the month of July. The fact that he has just been that dominant, giving up one earned run on the entire month. But it's a really strong start to kick off a doubleheader, and that's important. You need a strong start to kick off a doubleheader. So McKenzie... Even though he doesn't get the win because technically they come back and tie it off of the bullpen, um, I'm still giving him MVP on the day for a really, really great start. All right, that's all my thoughts on this doubleheader. Again, uh, the final scores from Chicago 
Game one, it's the Guardians seven, the White Sox four. Game two, it's the White Sox five, the Guardians four. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Barris. You can email the show at clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts on the game, and we'll discuss them on the show. Let me know your thoughts on the bullpen usage, and we'll discuss it on the show. Also, I'm hosting this podcast on Anchor, so if you go to anchor.fm forward slash Cleveland Baseball Mornings, you can leave a voicemail for the show. We'll play them back in the air, respond to your thoughts, and we'll have a fun conversation amongst the fans about baseball. So thanks again for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. <laughs>